Thank you. Hmm. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him. For you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money, money lender, charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people, so do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates, who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be an alien because you were aliens in Egypt. The Sabbath laws. For six years, you're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, <clears throat> but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the slave born in your household and the alien, alien as well may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
second reading as well from Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. All right, well, let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what, a, what a, a precious thing it is to come and to listen to your word, even to a part of your word which maybe we don't go to very often and which is a little foreign to us in our culture and time. Our loving Father, all scripture is breathed out by you and it's useful for us. And so we pray that you'd, by your spirit, help us to listen and then you would write the laws on our hearts by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Mark chapter 12, we have just read two very different attitudes to the law, the Mosaic law uh, from Exodus. Both were given, both of those attitudes were given by men who knew their stuff, both were experts in the law, and to the first, a single man, when Jesus had asked him about the law and the man had given his answer, Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Isn't that remarkable? And we wonder what he meant. Surely Jesus wasn't saying that someone could be saved by their works. He can't have. But somehow this man's attitude to the law revealed the true state of his spiritual condition and Jesus viewed it positively and he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. It's remarkable. And maybe we scratch our heads and wonder about that, but then we contrast that with what Jesus said about the other experts in the law, and there's a big difference because 
Jesus warns people about the other experts in the law and he says, watch out for them. They love the kudos from being seen as experts. They love walking around. They love drawing attention to themselves, but they do not look after the vulnerable, the widows, and in the end, they will be punished most severely. So Jesus draws this contrast and what's at stake is someone's eternity. Either they're in the kingdom of God or they're in a place of punishment and intriguingly, the difference between the two is shown up in their attitude to the law. Isn't that interesting? Well, that should make us stop and think if we're tempted just to pass off all this stuff in Exodus as irrelevant. Because according to this episode, our attitude to thinking on the will of God and obeying it is a barometer of our spiritual state before God. And at the very least, Exodus 21 to 23, our chapters we're looking at today, they still speak to us. They may not speak exactly to our situation at our time and place. But the God who spoke them hasn't changed and these laws still will reflect his character and they'll reveal the principles by which he wants his people to live. So the laws which we have on view are laws which unpack the Ten Commandments. They're given straight after the Ten Commandments, given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and they flesh out what the Ten Commandments meant for God's people Israel when they were applied to Israelite society. Moses called them the Book of the Covenant, mentioned there in chapter 24, verses four and seven. Now, you'll be relieved to know that we're not going to go through them one by one, but as a framework, and uh, we can go as a framework to the summary of the laws given by Jesus in Mark 12, our second reading. And the summary is this, uh, that what these laws are all about is loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and mind and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Those two commandments, says Jesus, sum up all the others, and the laws of Exodus uh, 21 to 23, therefore, can be summed up as loving God and loving our neighbor. That's what the Ten Commandments come down to. That's what these laws flesh out in their detail. That is, the Book of the Covenant is not full of laws for rule-keeping's sake. These laws are profoundly relational, and they begin with our love for God. And we see this at the start and the end of the laws and then right through them. So if in your Bibles or on your devices you look up Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20 verse 22, right? Straight after the Israelites have responded to receiving the 10 commandments, there the Lord reiterates the importance of the second commandment for them not to make any gods or idols to be worshiped alongside of him. And then in verse 24, God speaks about how the Israelites are to worship him. Don't make altars dressed with stones, don't have elaborate rituals, don't get lost in the outward form. The emphasis is on simplicity because God wants us to worship him with our hearts. So this section of the law begins by emphasizing our love for God and then scattered throughout these laws, these chapters, are also commands about worship. You know, do not blaspheme God. Do not hold back your offerings from the granaries or vats. And then if we flick right to the conclusion, chapter 23, verse 13, we see that worship of God is the theme which wraps up these commands 
There's the mention of the Sabbath day of rest. There's the, men- uh, the command, do not invoke the names of other gods. Don't let them be on your lips. There's the instructions about ver- various festivals. And the point is this. Worship of God is to be built into the rhythm and, uh, of our calendar and our life every week on the Sabbath, at the start of every year, the, fe- the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, celebrating God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. In the springtime, at the Feast, feast of Harvest, ce- celebrating the first fruits of the crops. And then at the end of the year, in autumn, at the end of harvest time, at the Feast of Ingathering, God says, worship of me is to be built into the rhythm and fabric of your life right throughout your week and your year. It's so right for us, for example, to meet every week to worship God. It's so right for us to have our hilltop praise, nights of regular nights of worship and praise right throughout the year. This is right, okay? Now, this is part of God's law given to his people. And it's worthwhile seeing this is different to most other law codes which only deal with regulating our horizontal person-to-person interactions. This law code has the horizontal and the vertical. And by beginning and ending with the vertical, the point is clear, the mark of the people of God will not just be our horizontal relationships, but first and foremost, our relationship with God. And then what God does is he frames all of the laws about how we're to relate as people, he frames that within an understanding of our worship of him, so that our, our obedience to him in the detail of lives of how we relate to one another is part and parcel of our worship of God. So it's saying our worship of God has to involve all of our lives, you see. There's no distinction in God's mind between our spiritual life and our everyday life. Everything we do is spiritual. You know, it's not as if our worship of God stops on Sunday when we leave church. Our worship of God is ongoing in the way in which we live throughout the week. So that how we treat the poor person we pass, or how we conduct ourselves at work or at school, it's just as much a part of our worship of God as the times when we come together to celebrate him. In fact, love of our neighbor is part of our worship, and that's why it's impossible to understand these laws apart from our love for God. They are profoundly relational. So uh, this is the point that the expert in the law, the first one, understood that the others missed out. Um, That behind the letter of these laws is meant to be a love for God, and these merely show what that means in the details of life. Okay, this is what's unique about these laws. All all other laws are there to regulate human behavior one to another on the horizontal plane. These laws are unique because they begin and end with this vertical dimension, getting our relationship with God Right, after all, it's God himself who gave gave us these laws, isn't he? So you read them, and they can sound impersonal. You read through chapter 21, it's very hard to find God mentioned there at all. They might seem impersonal, but they're not, because God is the one who gave them to the Israelites. Now, it's worthwhile stopping here and thinking about God's kindness to us here. In Egypt, for example, none of their laws were written down because Pharaoh was the law. So if you had a grievance or you'd done, you'd done something wrong, you had no knowledge of your rights, uh, no sense of, of where you stood, it entirely depended upon what 
Pharaoh thought of you. But God's different, you see, in setting forth the laws before all the Israelites and having them written down, what God is doing is he's establishing the principles for a just society. And that is an enormous kindness of God. In your workplace, you know, have you ever found yourself in trouble for not, uh, for not doing something that no one told you to do? Okay? Something that the boss assumed he'd asked and he assumed you knew, but he hadn't asked you and you didn't know. Okay? That can happen in families, can't it? You get in trouble because you didn't do something you were never asked to do, but you were just expected to kind of somehow know by ESP or something like this. God never does this. He sets out plainly and clearly what he expects of his people, and when they hear it, they all say in chapter 24, we'll do it. Now, of course, that raises attention about what happens when they don't do it, and in a few chapters, we're going to get to the incident of the golden calf, but for the time being, it's enough to know that God is fair. He won't ever punish anyone for what he hasn't told them. These rules are reasonable because they are based on his character. You take, for example, the laws God gives about how we're to treat the poor. Chapter 22, verse 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender, charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, presumably because he's poor and he's come to you for a loan, but the only thing he can give you is security for the loan is his cloak. If he takes, uh, if he gives you um, his cloak as a pledge, you've got to return it to him by sunset because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? So here's a poor person who sleeps outside, not in a house, and they need their cloak. Now, what would happen if you didn't return their cloak? God says, when he cries out to me, I will hear. Why? Because I am compassionate. So the reason God says we're to care for the poor with compassion is precisely because he is compassionate. So that's one example of how these laws reflect his character. And that's why obeying them is all about loving God and why the vertical dimension of loving God plays out in the horizontal dimension of loving our neighbor. All right, that's the first point. Love the Lord your God. Second point, love your neighbor. Now, we haven't got time to go through all of the laws, but I want to draw attention to four principles we can take and apply which tell us how to love our neighbor. The first principle is God's concern for his people to protect the weak and the vulnerable. It comes out straight away because the first laws which God sets out, chapters 22 verses two to 11, are laws about slavery and the protection of the rights of slaves, slaves being amongst the most vulnerable of people in Israelite society. This is remarkable. This is so remarkable that in the first laws that God says about how people are to treat one another, the first group he addresses are slaves. And he outlines the rights of slaves here. Uh, this is completely without precedent in the ancient world. Of course, it's incredibly rare that any laws were written about slaves in the ancient world because slaves were the property of their masters. The masters could do whatever they wanted to them. They could rape them, they could kill them, they could have children by them, they could starve them. Slaves had no rights. In fact, the only other instance of laws about slavery 
in the ancient world that is in existence is the Code of Hammurabi. You can see a copy of it in the British Museum I have. Uh, this was written about the time of Abraham before these laws. It has 282 laws, and guess where the laws of, the, of slavery are, are listed? Right at the end, right at the end. But even there, it only mentions slavery in terms of what rights the master has over his slaves, not what rights the slave has. So this is totally revolutionary. Here, the very first laws that are mentioned about people are about slavery and about the rights of slaves. What does that say about God? who gives these laws. What does it say except that close to God's heart's uh, heart is, the, is the concern, his concern for the weak and the vulnerable. Now if we're wondering why slavery existed in Israel at all, we need to remember a few things. Um, just because God pronounces laws about something doesn't mean that he endorses it. God pronounces laws about murder, but he doesn't endorse murder. This is the God who rescued his people from slavery. In chapter 21, verse 16, God pronounces the death penalty on anyone who becomes a slave trader, who kidnaps people so as to sell them. God is not pro-slavery. Also, Israelite slavery was a long way ahead of slavery anywhere else because slavery in any other country was almost always for life, but Israelite slaves were to be set free after six years. Which means that, thirdly, in many ways, slavery in Israel was a better alternative to punishment than our solution today, which is to lock people in prison for years, taking them out of society and entrenching them often in crime. In contrast, Israelite thieves who'd been caught who couldn't repay had to become slaves, chapter 22, verse two, which meant that the sentence was limited to six years. They were productive in society, often working those, uh, working to repay, sorry, those who they'd uh, stolen from, and provision was made to keep families together in, instead of splitting them apart. How about that? There are other rights too. God sets them in law. Why? Because God cares for the vulnerable and the powerless. That principle comes out in the way in which Israelites are commanded, chapter 22, verse 21, not to mistreat or oppress the aliens, the foreigners among you. Why? Because they themselves were once aliens or foreigners in Egypt. So you see, God knows that it's very quick for us to forget what we, we were without God. He knows our tendency to become high and mighty and even racist if we forget that we will uh, what we were like without God. God says you're not to be like that. His concern is always for those who are vulnerable, including those who feel like they don't belong. Now that has relevance for how we welcome people at church. We must have an eye for people who feel like they don't belong. The newcomer, the person from overseas, the visiting person, who feels like a shag on a rock and doesn't know where to sit or what to do. Or the long-term member who now feels befriended, a defriended, sorry, um, and they're regarded as part of the furniture but no one knows that they are very lonely. We have to show concern for the weak and the vulnerable. God's concern for the vulnerable comes out 
is in his instructions in chapter 22, verse 22. Do not take advantage of an orphan or a widow. They are the most disadvantaged of all back then. At least slaves have a roof over their head and food to eat, but for the really defenseless, the orphans and the widows, God says, don't take advantage of them. And we see how serious he is when he says in verse 23, if you do take advantage of them and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry, my anger will be aroused, and I will step in and I will fight for them against you. Now, nowhere else in these chapters does God speak so personally about himself stepping in into our human affairs to act for justice, except for those who are really vulnerable. And if we think God's being harsh, we need to remember that the flip side of God's wrath for those who tread on others is his compassion for those who are trod upon. So enshrined in, this, uh, in Israelite law is his character. And although we're not under those laws today, this is a principle which we can enshrine in our lives. And so when we come to this, these old laws, it's really important to read them carefully and to think, what is this saying about what God values and about what's important for him and what his character is towards us and people in society? And therefore, what's this saying about what my character should be if I'm to emulate the character of God? You know, when is it that you feel most tempted to walk on by another person in need? Is it when you receive calls for donations from aid agencies? Is it when you're walking through town and you pass by someone who's looking for help? Is it at church when you see someone sitting alone, a new person, or someone with a disability, or someone who's homeless? It's worth asking whether we ever stop at all to help someone in need, or whether we always think someone else is going to do it and we choose to just to walk on by. Friends, God calls us to be like him. He calls us to be holy, just as he is holy. And Jesus says by doing that, we actually shine as a light, of the, a light to the world so that the world may come to know him. Well, as we've seen, what's holy and distinctive about God is his strong concern to protect the weak and the vulnerable. We can't ignore it. God is concerned to protect the right the rights of the weak and the vulnerable, and he calls us to do the same, and that's his first principle. The second, quicker now, comes out um, in these laws, is the sanctity of human life. That, that principle comes out in chapter 21, verse 12. Anyone who strikes someone and kills them shall surely be put to death, right? Now, some would respond to that death penalty and say, well, here is a primitive vengeful society in which life was cheap. That's why the death penalty is exacted. But life was far from cheap. It's because of the very high value that God places upon human life that the death penalty is inflicted upon those who take life. All right? Um, it comes out, the basis for this is in Genesis chapter nine, verse six. Let me read it to you. This is foundational for these verses, where God says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. So there's the principle of the sanctity of human life. We are not just naked apes, <laughs> just animals. We have enormous dignity created in the image of our maker. And that is why murder is so serious. 
In Israelite law, no offence involving property ever receives the death penalty because no amount of human property was ever worth a human life. But all offences against the person are taken extremely seriously. Have a look at Exodus 21, verse 22. Here's the situation uh, in which men are involved in a brawl. They hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely and God's law says that if no serious injury is caused, presumably to her or her baby, then there's to be a fine exacted. But if there is serious injury, then you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise. That's how seriously God takes a crime against a human being, whether born or unborn. I'm not a lawyer, but I was, uh, did some digging. I was glad to, glad to find out that in Australia, the mandatory sentence for murder is life imprisonment. Although I was surprised to learn that this can translate to a minimum sentence of as low as seven years in Western Australia, depending on the case. And we think, is that really sufficient punishment? Does it adequately reflect the seriousness of the crime of taking a life? Of course, we need to be flexible. God's law certainly was. In 21 verse 13, God took account of manslaughter, which is unintentional killing. That doesn't carry the death penalty. Or chapter 22 verse two, if a thief is killed when breaking into a property at night, his killer isn't guilty of murder, because for all he knew in the darkness, the thief was about to kill him. But very interestingly, chapter 22, verse three, if it happens after sunrise, he's guilty of bloodshed, right? If there's light and he kills a thief, he's guilty of murder. If he needn't kill the thief to protect his own life, he mustn't, and if he does, he's guilty of murder, which might surprise us. But it reflects the very high value God places on every human life even the life of a thief who's trying to steal from your property. See, human beings are far more valuable than my property rights. No human life is cheap, not a thief's, not that of a fetus in the womb, nor the infirm coming towards the end of their days in a hospice. Every human being, born, unborn, young, old, physically disabled, those with learning disabilities, refugees, criminals, all are made in the image of God and the law must protect them all and inflict serious punishment upon people who harm them. Now, we don't get to set the laws of our land, although we do, as uh, citizens of our land, uh, get to have conversations with our elected officials, and many of you did in the recent abortion debate, for example, in Parliament. And although that, that law was passed, because so many people in South Australia spoke to their elected officials, thank you if you did, we have the best amendments in that law now enshrined, which really angered the people who put the law up. So there you go. Um, we made some difference. But there is a principle here which we need to let shape our life even though we don't set the laws ourselves. We need to remember that every human being we meet is made in the image of God. And we need to live this out. You know, that annoying neighbour who keeps you awake at night, the, the driver, the hoon who, pass, who, who rides roughshod uh, you know, past you on the road, the, the classmate who's never got the kind word, the colleague at work who always makes mistakes that you always have to cover for. 
We have to treat them as people who are made in the image of God. And Jesus takes this law and applies it to to us today in our lives when he said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. And he says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You know, the times we say to ourselves, I could kill that person. In our hearts and minds, we're murdering that person because we're saying, I'd be better off if they were dead. Well, what a difference it makes if we remember the sanctity of human life. There's principle number two under the love your neighbor heading. Very quickly, the third principle is the principle of restitution or reparation, which I tried to illustrate in the kids' talk. The word is mentioned six times in chapter 22, verses two to 17. The principle is very simple. Where one person's actions or irresponsibility causes financial or personal loss to another person, the guilty must personally pay to put right that that loss. This applies to thieves stealing other people's goods. They have to pay back double. It applies to the man who grazes his livestock on another person's field or burns down that field. It applies to the person um, who lets um, an animal die when it's been lent to them um, or it's been entrusted to their care. It implies to what happens when someone steals, when a man steals a future wife off another man by seducing a virgin woman who has not yet been pledged to be married to someone else. In cases like these, words of regret aren't enough. Lots of us have had things stolen from us, and usually, you know, we might report it to the police, and then often that's the last we hear. We're the ones who end up paying for it, or else our insurance company, but we end up paying for them too in our higher premiums. But enshrined in God's law is this idea of restorative justice where the offenders are required to personally take responsibility for their actions. And the actions of reparation or putting it right or repairing of what was taken. We have to do it. You might remember when Jesus came to Zacchaeus' house and he said, I must stay in your house today and eat with you. And then Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector who'd been ripping off his people for years, said, here and now, I'm gonna pay back anyone who I've robbed four times the amount. He's embodying the spirit of the law. He's putting right his wrongs and owning his responsibility. Okay, so that's the principle, the third one of restitution, which reflects the just character of God. And it's a principle we need to inculcate in our lives. Those whom we've wronged, we must make it up to them if it is all within our means to do so. The final and last principle is the, import, the, one, uh, the importance of compassion. I've already said quite a bit about this, about God's compassion to the weak and the vulnerable, but I want us to see now how it stretches further. In chapter 23, God takes that principle of compassion and applies it to our enemies. Verse four, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, don't see this as an opportunity to take revenge. Be sure to take that animal back to him. And if you see the donkey of someone who hates you who's fallen down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Friends, this is the law of Christ. Didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? Do good to those who persecute you? Didn't he tell us that if our enemy strikes us on one cheek, we are to turn to him the other also? Didn't he show us this action in his own life on the cross, 
When he prayed, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. It's so easy in the heat of the moment to respond in kind, isn't it? Someone shouts at you, you immediately shout back. It's so easy to live in this tit-for-tat morality, you know, one bad turn deserves another. God points us to a better way. Come back to me with where, where we started, to Jesus' words, both of commendation or condemnation for the experts in the law. Why was it that to the first he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God, and of the others they will be punished most severely? It wasn't that one was an expert and one, one wasn't. They were all experts in the law. Anyone with a Bible, like you, can read the law and you can study it and become an expert. The difference is in your attitude to the law. The expert in the law who Jesus condemns, if the summary of the law points us to the love for God and love for a neighbor, they saw none of it. They misread the laws entirely. They were people who liked important seats at banquets. They were full of themselves. They were, their concentration was on themselves, but not on God and not on other people. And they were the ones who devoured widows' houses, who preyed upon the vulnerable instead of protecting the rights of the vulnerable. They used the law to puff themselves up in their own self-centered righteousness. And if we do that, we will earn Jesus' condemnation, not commendation. Because, of course, we'll be blind to our need for our saviour. Because we won't love God and we'll read these things as just things to tick off in our life rather than seeing them as relational and reflecting our need to love God and love people. And therefore, we won't understand that life is relational and we won't understand how we often fall short and we won't understand our need for a saviour which Jesus meets us in. To the person, however, who loves God, they'll see God's, God's law um, as something to love. They won't hate it, they won't pass over it. They'll see it guidelines of how to live which reflect the character of the God who's loved them. And they'll try to obey and they'll try and reflect God's character in their lives and these laws will be helpful and they'll give them guidance and help. And of course they'll see that the way they fall short and of course, because they're trying to love God but can't do it fully, they will understand their need for a saviour. So let me ask you, even though we're not under Old Testament law, we've seen principles that reflect the character of God. So are we the person who loves to study them, loves to obey them, loves to reflect them in our lives, even to stretch them with the intensity that Jesus taught us. Well, if that's you, then you'll be the sort of person that Jesus will say of, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for you will be shown mercy. Or on the other hand, are you the person who just sort of passes over this? Over what Jesus demands of us, we reduce our Christian life to ticking a few boxes. Well, if you're like that, the love of God is cold in your heart and you will be blind to your need for a saviour. Your attitude to the law reflects your attitude to God who made them and gives them for our help as we try and love him and love others. Father in heaven, uh, 
Please help us to be those who study your law because we love you and we wanna know how to love you and others better. Amen.